Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a Sunday special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, February 11, 2018. My name is Melanie C., a recovered compulsive overeater from Oregon. The share ID numbers for Friday, February 9, 2018, are the following. The 7 a.m. Eastern Time Big Book Study Meeting is 11023-11023. And for the 10 a.m. Eastern Time Big Book Study Meeting, that number is 11031-11031. This morning, A Vision for You presents Step 6, Misunderstood and Forgotten. Step 6 can be found in a couple of places in the Big Book. The compelling six-line paragraph of instructions is on page 76. Knowing that so much of the big book is given to considerable instruction, how come only six lines for step six? Six lines for step six. Perhaps we are to conclude that to take this step would be swift. Now that might be just a witticism. We have admitted that we are powerless over compulsive overeating and that our lives are indeed unmanageable. We realized we took a turn for the worse by our own hand and recognized that we were out of our right mind and something more powerful outside of ourselves, the very best that we could ever do, would be just the thing to address this malady. We therefore decided to hand over our entire lives to that power. Then we learned about those things that prevented us from accessing this powerful restorative help. And we wrote it all down in black and white and took a very honest look at it. We referred to these findings of this effort, defects of character. Step step six addresses the findings of defects of character. However, the step is written as a statement of fact and is all packaged up and ready to roll out. Here's step six. We're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Still, it is very good to examine this. Bill Wilson himself writes about certain defects of character that we still revel in, find very powerful and used to be persuasive and perhaps not so easily cast aside. If we take a close look at it, could it be that we are not entirely ready? Are overlooking or forgetting about some of these? Maybe, just maybe, we could turn this into a very crucial question. Are we entirely, absolutely ready? This leads us to, into our topic today, Step 6, Misunderstood and Forgotten. I propose that there is much more to this Step 6, six lines, and it will be very fascinating to listen to today. Today to speak on this topic of Step 6, Misunderstood and Forgotten, is Nessa R. Nessa R. is from Toronto, Canada, and she is devoted to the recovery, to the program of recovery outlined in the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous and is a faithful contributor to our daily Big Book study meetings. She is here today, ever so loyal in her service of paying it forward. Please help me welcome to the line, Nessa R. Good morning, Nessa. Hi, good morning, Melanie, and thank you. Um, good morning, vision for you. My name is Nessa R. I am a recovered compulsive overeater in Toronto, Canada, and I am honored, humbled, and grateful for the opportunity to be of service to this wonderful, wonderful meeting. So during the weekly, daily meetings, we have been reading from the chapter, There is a Solution. Um, And recently, either the last week or the previous week, um, we read that the the 
the main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than in his body. Um, this is on page 23. And further on it says, there is the obsession that somehow, someday, they will beat the game. So the first question that pops into my mind is, what is an obsession? And there are several dictionary definitions. One is an idea or a thought that continually preoccupies, preoccupies or intrudes on a person's mind. Another one is a persistent, disturbing preoccupation with an unreasonable idea. So this tells me, as does the big book, that the crux of my problem is the way I think. And this makes sense to me because my thoughts drive my feelings and my feelings drive my actions. So if, I, if my thinking is good, my feelings are good, and my actions are good, consequently, my life is also good. The converse, however, and sadly, is also true. So if my thinking is poor, my feelings are poor, my actions are poor, and my life is poor, and so is the life of everybody around me. And uh, this is just a very good, short, brief description of my life uh, before recovery. So the obvious solution here is to turn my thinking into good thinking, my poor thinking into good thinking. But the problem with this is that I have practiced in my way of thinking for decades, in my case, 45 years. And so I have no idea how to think differently. Like, how do I know what I don't know? So I keep thinking the same way, feeling the same way, and doing the same things while expecting different results. And, and you know, here's an example. 1987, I started um, working for a financial institution on Wall Street. I did very well doing my training program, and I was placed in one of the choiciest, sexiest departments. You know, however, you know, during my placement interview, the HR guy told me that I was a steamroller and I needed to rein down my pushiness. So I continued to climb the ladder of power and responsibility. Um, fast forward to 1997. I'm here now in Toronto where I was transferred long before. I had my dream job. I just needed the dream title and a dream paycheck. And I did not get it. I was passed up for a promotion. So I sat with my boss who explained why I had been passed up. It was the exact same reason that the HR guy told me way back in 1987. I was rigid, opinionated, intransigent, and difficult to work with. So in 10 years, nothing changed. Not, uh, you know, it makes sense to me because I, I have no clue how to change my thinking. You know, three, three years later, I lost my job for the exact same reasons. So you would think that I would have learned my lesson, but no, the same behavior continued because I didn't know how to change. I didn't know how to change my thinking. How do I teach myself to, to think differently? You know, um, all I know is, all I knew then is how I thought and I got really good at it um, and I suffered the consequences. So this is where the steps come in. The steps teach me new, better thinking skills. And in my opinion, it is step six and 10 that play a big role here. You know, they are the steps that accustom me to a different thinking paradigm. Um, I call them the change steps. Most people are familiar with step 10, but step six has really been misunderstood and forgotten. Um, in the doctor's opinion, the doctor tells us um, that um, unless this person can experience an entire psychic change, there is very little hope of his recovery. 
So what is a psychic change? Page 27 gives us an answer. Huge emotional displacements and rearrangements, ideas, emotions, and attitudes, which were once the guiding forces of the lives of these men, are suddenly cast aside cast to one side, and a new set of conceptions and motives begin to dominate them. Um, I, I am a student of Joe and Charlie, uh, as probably are some of the people on the line. You know, I listen to their tapes over and over and over again. I, I, I listen to them, and when I'm done, I start all over again, kind of like kind of like we study the big book um, at this meeting, you know. It's just uh, one, one, one repetitive loop. And so I have learned from them that Bill never used the same word repeatedly. He loves synonyms. And this paragraph is the perfect example. He uses these words, ideas, attitudes, conceptions, motives. They all need, mean one thing. It's thoughts. So how is the psychic change produced? Again, page 27 says, a vital spiritual experience, which when I go to Appendix 2, which is referenced there, tells me that it is a personality change to bring about recovery. Now, what is a personality? A personality is the way I think, the way I feel, and the way I act. So I'm back again to the root of my trouble, my thinking. So now this is the, the background to the topic of today, step six. Um, step six is we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Um, I, I didn't really know what that meant. Um, you know, what does it mean to be entirely ready? Um, I thought I knew what defects of character meant. Um, but, you know, anyway, I just went back to the dictionary so that I could really clarify uh, in my mind. And the dictionary tells me that character is the way someone thinks, feels, and behaves, someone's personality. Again, I'm back to the same issue, thinking like all the roads really lead to the same place, my thinking. And a defect is a shortcoming, imperfection, or lack. So defects of character tell me that there's something deficient in the way I think, in the way I think, you know, like duh. So if, if I want my life to change, I have to find a way to change the way I think. And like I said before, I don't know how to think differently. Um, if I did, I would be doing it right already and I, don't, I wouldn't have to be um, here. I wouldn't have to wake up early every morning to listen to the meetings and I wouldn't have to spend countless hours of the day you know, working the steps and working with others. So then the next question is like, what does it mean to become entirely ready? How do I become entirely ready? And that is easy. I wrote my step four. I looked at my resentments, my fears, and my sex conduct from an entirely different angle, meaning not from the angle of how I have been hard, hard done by or how I am right and everybody else is wrong. I look at it from the angle um, of, how did I contribute to this? Because I am the manufacturer of my own misery. And as the book says, my problems are of my own making. I see that the root of every single one of these entries is my selfish, dishonest, self-seeking nature. In other words, my defects. So those defects are the cause of my misery and the misery of those around me. Seeing the true cause, i.e. me, of the wreckage and suffering in my life and the life of others should make me willing to let go of these defects. Now, I may have trouble recognizing this on my own because after all, you know, like I've been finding excuses, rationalizations, justifications for my behavior my entire life. And I'm very good at it. And this is why I have step five. I share my step four, uh, four, in step five, I share my step four with someone else. 
someone who is recovered, someone who is unbiased and is not afraid to point out the hard truths to me. For me, that person is my sponsor. Um, and then the true reality of my suffering and unhappiness will be plainly evident and I will want to change it. So if I have done steps four and five thoroughly, um, sorry, excuse me. My, um, my, my phone is just doing wonky things with the volume. Um, so if I've done um, steps four and five thoroughly, they will bring me to the entirely readiness to, ha to have these defects go. Not just the consequences, because a lot of us are entirely ready to have the consequences removed, but we still want to hold on to the defects themselves. You know, just like I was before recovery, I, I was entirely ready to have my fat removed while I still continue to binge. I was entirely ready to have others not be bad at me, not retaliate, and like me and admire me while I continue to behave in selfish, controlling, obnoxious way. I was entirely ready to have other people change so that my life could be good. Um, but that's not the way it works. So, so the main point, again, how do I show that I am entirely ready? And I looked in the AA 12 and 12, and it says at the very beginning of the write-up on step six, that this is the step that separates the men from the boys, or I guess the, the women from the girls, the grown-ups from the children. I believe this is so, because step six requires a lot of work. Um, it is only one paragraph in the big book, which I guess makes it kind of misleading. Uh, and as Melanie said in the introduction, the first paragraph on page 76. But it is not so short because we have no work to do. The uh, 12 and 12 says, if we ask, God will certainly forgive our derelictions, but in no case does he render us white as snow and keep us that way without our cooperation. That is something we are supposed to be willing to work toward ourselves. And to me, the operative word here is work. Then um, um, it also goes on to say, that step six is AA's way of stating the best possible attitude one can take in order to make a beginning of this lifetime job. This tells me again that I have to do some work. That's what the word job implies. You know, it's not only um, doing it once or twice, it is for a lifetime. And then um, I guess to finish quoting the 12 and 12, it says, the key words entirely ready underline the fact that we want to aim the very best we know or can learn. So basically nothing will work unless I do. I have to do the work. And practically speaking, what exactly is this work? Um, so as I said earlier, I am a student of Joe and Charlie. And from them I learned about the work of step six. And I will use a very, very simplistic example. Let's say that someone is a gossip monger, which has gotten them into a lot of trouble with a lot of people. So can this person claim to be entirely ready to have God remove his desire to gossip if he's still gossiping, he's still indulging in it, you know, because it makes him feel powerful or, or interesting or, or whatever? Hardly. This person needs to demonstrate their readiness by not speaking, by not listening to or in any way participating in any gossip. Um, it is the same with all the other defects. I cannot ask God to remove my selfishness 
while I go through life focused only on myself and my desires at the exclusion of everyone else. It would be like asking God to remove my food obsession while I'm sitting in front of a Chinese buffet downing my, my full plate of food. Like I tried it many times and, and I'll tell you it does not work or I wouldn't be here. So my behavior has to evidence my entire readiness. Um, I have heard repeatedly in the rooms of OA that if you want everything to change, you must change everything. And this includes the way I think. And step six is where this process starts. So, you know, when I take my sponsees through step six, I ask them to take their step four inventory, review each entry and how the defects of character play out in each one, how they have been selfish, self-seeking, dishonest, and fearful. So starting with the review of resentment, I ask them to add another column to the chart and label it, why does my behavior look like if I'm working step six? and write down what their behavior should have been in each case. And we do the same thing with the review of sex conduct. And I'm gonna give an exa personal example a little bit later. Um, because what, what Joe and Charlie say here is I have to act as if, I have to do the opposite of what I have been habitually doing uh, my whole life. Um, the review of fears is actually a lot easier because we have already done the work, right? When uh, page 68, the big book says that we ask God to remove our fears and direct our attention to what he would have us be. You know, that what he would have us be is what my behavior should be like, what step six looks like. Um, so I, I want to give you a very tried example of my daily life, um, but I think it gets the point across, up across. And it's example, I talk about this often because it's such a good example, and I think everybody can relate to it. Is the example of my kids taking out the garbage. So I'm resentful at my kids because they don't take out the garbage. They don't. They're not proactive um, to look in the, you know, where we keep the cover, where we keep the garbage cans to see if they need to be emptied. But not only that, when um, I ask them, um, they don't respond immediately. They take their own time. I have to ask many times. So that that's my resentment. So how am I being selfish? I'm being selfish because I don't want to take out the garbage, number one, it's yucky. I want them to do it. I'm selfish because I want them to take it out now, this instant, the moment I ask, or even better, without me even asking. I am dishonest. Um, how am I dishonest? I cannot be okay when my children don't do their chores, when my children don't listen to me. Uh, I'm dishonest by telling you this is a way um, of disrespect. They're showing me their disrespect by not, um, you know, fulfilling their responsibilities. Um, how am I self-seeking? Well, this reflects on me. I must be doing a lousy job raising them. You know, what are people going to think that my kids are totally irresponsible because, you know, I haven't done a better job at, at, at parenting? And how am I fearful? Um, well, you know, if this is how they behave now, how are they going to behave when they have bigger responsibility? You know, they're not going to be able to cope. They're not going to do what they're supposed to do. They're going to be, um, you know, derelict bums and they're going to have a hard life. So uh, I look at my fear. I ask God to remove my fear, direct my attention to what he would have me be. And what would he have me be? He would have me be patient 
she would have me be understanding. You know, how many times people ask me to do things and I drop everything that I'm doing that instant and do it for them? You know, probably never. You know, most people cannot just drop what they're doing and, and go help some, somebody else instantaneously. So it's the same thing with my kids. Um, I have to be accepting. They have different priorities. You know, maybe they're talking to their friends and, hey, that's a lot more fun than taking out the garbage. Um, um, I have to be the opposite of nagging and controlling. I have to be reliant on God that God um, is going to look after them and their futures. It's not me and, and, and who's going who, who's gonna to take care of them. So you, you get the picture. So now how do I work step six? So I look at how am I being selfish? And I already said how I'm being selfish. So now what is the opposite of that? Well, if I need the garbage taken out immediately, I take it out myself. Uh, if I don't need to take it out immediately, I can ask and then wait patiently, you know, without um, repeating over and over and over again. They've heard me the first time. They don't need to hear two, three, four, ten times. Um, and I wait till they do it. Um, if I need to, then I just start another garbage bag. How am I being dishonest? So I say to myself, Nancy, you can be okay. You know, your well-being does not depend on anybody else. Your well-being depends on doing God's will, and it is not God's will that you scream at their kids, especially over silliness like this. If you align yourself with God's will, you're okay. Um, how am I being self-seeking? I, again, I still talk to myself. My sponsor taught me to talk to myself. <laughs> I say, Nessa, it's not about you, and it's not a reflection on you. It's just garbage. How important is it really? And as far as the fears, I already said, what would God have me be? And that's how I act. And I need to act. And I need to act that way. And it might be very hard. And I might be biting my tongue, you know, like, so that I don't say any, anything. And that's fine, because that's demonstrating my willingness to have God remove my defects of character. Then when I ask God in step seven, to actually take them away, uh, I might find one day that I'm just doing these things without forcing myself, that I'm not really biting my tongue. And I always say, oh, my goodness, God has, has, has removed my, my impulse to nag my children and get mad at them. You know, how amazing is that? So until that happens, um, I continue to do this work. And some people call it, as I said before, acting as if, fake it so you make it, do the opposite of what you want to do. And the truth is, it doesn't really matter what you call it. My behavior has to show that I am entirely ready. So I practice step six every moment of my day uh, to train my thought process to go in a different direction than it would habitually do. You know, my thinking is not going to change overnight. I, I I practice my diseased way of thinking for 45 years. So this is not going to happen in one day. So in other words, through the work of this step, I slowly change the way I think, and therefore I change the way I feel, and therefore the way I act. And one day, as I said, I will wake up and find that God has removed this specific, this specific defect. I no longer want to act I no longer have to act as if because I no longer have the desire to, say, gossip. It's just like the food. You know, once I recover, the food no longer calls to me, so I don't have to fight it anymore. And it's exactly the same with the defects. 
You know, just as I have to be entirely abstinent with food, I have to demonstrate my entire readiness by not indulging in my defects, by being abstinent, I guess, of acting out my defects until they are removed. So then I ask God in step seven to take away the defects while continuing to work step six until he does. And here I have a, a little bit of a, of a analogy that I really love. And it's, it's, there, it's, a, it's an analogy of a farmer and his field and rain. You know, um, if a farmer has a field and the farmer plows the field and sows it and takes care of it, then when God brings the rain, the field flourishes and produces a beautiful, bountiful crop. But if the farmer does nothing to the field, when God sends the rain, then all that the farmer has is just a pile of mud. You know, and to me, this is kind of like an analogy for step six and seven. Step six is my footwork, you know, my sowing, my plowing, etc. And step seven is the rain. Uh, so I, once I demonstrate my readiness, then God has something to work with and can remove my defects. Asking God to remove my defects in step seven without doing my part in step six is like God sending the rain to a fallow field. You know, like nothing's going to come out of it, you know. Um, so here I want to I wanna offer a word of caution. I want immediate gratification. I want my pain to be removed immediately and ideally without any effort on my part. I mean, that's why I overweight compulsively most of my life. And it didn't work. It didn't work because it doesn't work that way. The big book says on page 83, Yes, there is a long period of reconstruction ahead. Um, so for most people, um, things don't happen overnight or without effort. I mean, we, we, we read about it in Appendix 2, you know. We have a spiritual awakening of the, um, uh, of the learning variety. What is it called? The, um, anyhow, I forgot the wording, and I don't have my book in front of me um, in that page. But um, So step six is also an action step. You know, on page 163, um, we are told to duplicate with such backing what we have accomplished is only a matter of willingness, patience, and labor. Uh, and I'm going to take those three words apart. Willingness, as, as was talked to me by, by a very dear friend of mine in program, does not mean wanting to do something. It means doing it, even though we may not want to. Patience, as defined in the dictionary, means the capacity to accept or tolerate delay, trouble, or suffering without getting angry or upset. Labor, as defined in the dictionary, means hard physical work. So, from where I stand, um, having been recovered for over six years, living in a normal body, wearing the same clothes summer after summer after summer without worrying whether the clothes from last year will fit, watching my loved ones eat the foods that used to trigger me without obsessing over them, willingness, patience, and labor have a huge payoff for those who make the investment. And I can say that as a result of this work, my thoughts are changing. I don't react or overreact, <laughs> more likely, as easily, um, as often, or as strongly as I used to. I do not lose my temper. I do not yell at my kids in most cases. 
and I give people the benefit of the doubt with rush, without rushing to, to blame or to judge. You know, a lot of the time I think of others, as the big book says, to the point of self-sacrifice. And my life now is good, and it's meaningful. So, like, a few examples of how these steps have changed me. So, again, the obvious changes are, you know, my weight reduction of about 70 pounds and the fact that food is no longer the dominating theme in my life. You know, it went from playing the main role to a minor supporting character, you know, like an extra. But now, how has my behavior changed? And, 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 and here's some examples. Like, my, my family used to brace um, for the time when I woke up on Saturday mornings, what mood was I going to be in? And usually, I would wake up, and as soon as I went downstairs, I would start raging over the fact that the house was a mess, nobody bothered to tidy up or clean it up so that I, so I, had, I had to do it all. Invariably, there were uh, arguments with my husband, screaming at my kids. What happens now? I wake up before everyone else. If I cannot put up the mess, um, I clean it up. Most of the times it doesn't bother me, so I leave it for whoever needed to clean it up. Uh, I used to be a control freak, bothering everyone, I mean, bossing everybody around, um, nagging incessantly. I micromanaged everything from how the dishwasher should be loaded to how my husband should make a living. And now I mind my own business, but not like by exploding inside my head and holding my tongue. It's truly effortless. You know, I have an excellent relationship with my husband. Um, My kids know me as someone who doesn't yell. They find me easy to talk to. I no longer lecture them, but for the most part, I mean, sometimes, um, you know, it didn't turn into a saying. But, you know, like when they ask me to do something for them, um, I don't lecture them about how when they need me, I'm there, but when I need something from them, I got to beg and I got to put up with their rude replies and yada, yada, yada. You know, I just simply tell them whether I can or cannot help, period. It ends there. Um, I'm also less likely to judge people harshly and more likely to either find a justification for their behavior, like I used to find justification for my own behavior, um, or to see how I would behave if I was in their shoes. And, you know, those are just a few, um, a few examples. And um, I guess I, I will close with this. Uh, I practice my insane way of thinking, as I said, for 45 years. And since practice makes perfect, I was very good at it. You know, my brain is not going to forget what has been ingrained for four and a half decades so quickly. So I really have to persevere and I have to practice a different way of thinking. And that's the different way of thinking that is taught to me by the 12 steps of OA. You know, my mind is always going to be occupied with something. And if I do not direct my mind to what to occupy itself with, it will find something not so productive. So I cannot let my mind go on autopilot. I have to be vigilant about my thoughts. I have to be present. You know, to use, I guess, a cliche of our decade, I have to be mindful, you know, so that I can retrain my brain uh, until the time that God sees fit to actually remove my defects of character. Um, you know, one defect of character that has been removed for me, probably the only one, is self-pity. 
self-pity was my go-to place. Oh, my goodness. You know, poor me. I don't deserve this. Why does everything happen to me? I'm so hard done by, you know, I'm just a victim. I was doing I was doing nothing, you know, I don't, you know, why, why do people behave like this to me? On and on and on ad nauseum. And, you know, I don't do that anymore. And I don't even have to act as if anymore because I don't feel it. You know, when something doesn't go my way, I, I see God's hand in it. And I see, okay, um, why is not important? It's what? What do I need to do about it? Uh, I no longer go to the self-pity place. But before uh, my self-pity um, um, proclivities were removed, I did have to act as if. I did have to practice and pretend that I was not in self-pity. You know, so again, you know, practice makes perfect. So I have to be careful what I practice. And I pass. Thank you so much, Nessa. Appreciate that. You really gave a lot of yourself today and offering the continual awareness of that uprising of defective character. And the, certainly the step six daily application, that awareness is much more than we ever imagined. It is a daily, daily effort and a daily awareness and awakening. Thank you again. We're going to move over now to offering an opportunity for people that are here at this meeting today to ask questions of Nessa about her presentation today, and the presentation is step six, misunderstood and forgotten. Anyone have any questions this morning for Nessa? Jane J. H. Hi, Jane J. and Ruth H. Anyone else this morning? A nice line up here for step six. Step six. FPK. Kathy K. Hi. Hi. Devora L. Devora L. We have Jane J. Ruth H. Kathy K. And Devora L. Jane J. How about your question? You come first. Sue F. Thank you, Melanie. May I be heard? Yes, you can. Hi. Hi. Thank you, Nessa, so much for your service and your share of your story. You mentioned that God removed your defective character of self-pity, and you helped with that by acting as if. Would you please share the steps that you took, the tasks that you took in order to practice acting as if you were not in self-pity? Thank you. Thank you. Um, thank you for your question. Um, yeah, I, um, you know, I demonstrated my readiness um, to have God remove my self-pity by doing exactly the opposite. In, in the case of self-pity, it's more of a thought than an action. So um, when something wouldn't go my way, um, you know, let's say I was planning to to get somewhere in 10 minutes, and in the end, I ended up being late half an hour. Um, and I'm just an example of my daily life because I spend a lot of time in my car. Um, you know, instead of blaming it on, you know, it's not my fault, it was so much traffic, and I got all the, all the, all the red lights, and woe is me, and I'm going to be late, and people are going to think that I'm so... Um, 
so tardy and irresponsible and why is this happening to me? How am I going to deal with me? You know, like I had everything planned. I did everything right. You know, but it's just like the circumstances didn't come together. Instead of doing that, I, I would say, you know what? And I say, um, next time you need to leave a little bit, leave a little bit earlier. It's gonna be okay. You know, you're gonna go, go there. And you're gonna excuse yourself for being late. You're gonna take responsibility for your tardiness. You know, it may not have been your fault, but it is your responsibility because you committed to be there. And you know, everything is gonna be fine. So it's just a matter. It is a matter of me redirecting my my thinking. But the hardest part is not so much redirecting my thinking, it's being aware and present that my thinking needs redirecting because I have this, like, tape playing in, in my head, you know, that's just, like, um, automatic. It kicks in when something doesn't go my way. And so I have to, I have to stop it before it starts. You know, I have to say, okay, and I, and I say stop. Stop it as a pity and then start practicing a new tape, so to speak. So this is, this is just an example. Uh, it's taking what I would normally have thought in those circumstances and thinking differently. So if my, if my, if my, um, if my impulse was to lay blame, then I have to take responsibility. You know, uh, if the impulse is to feel sorry for myself, then I need to empower myself and say, and how am I going to empower myself? I think it's going to be okay. Just take responsibility next time, leave 10 minutes earlier. Um, I hope that answers your question. It, it, it's so difficult to, to give a formula because every situation is so different and there's like millions and millions of different situations. But I hope that this, um, this helps. Thank you, Jane J. Ruth H., your question, please, for Nessa. Thank you, Melanie, so much. This is Ruth H., gratefully recovered in Connecticut. And Nessa, thank you so much for your presentation. I actually have two questions, but the first one's brief, so I hope that's okay. Um, as a relatively new sponsor, I have been guided to work steps five, six, and seven together in one day or in a, in a brief period of time when possible. But I've heard others talk about staying in step six for a longer period of time, up to two weeks. And I'm curious um, how you guide your sponsees in, in that. And my other question was about your example with the children and taking out the garbage. My boys are grown, and so my approach is very similar to what you had said, my, the way God has led me. But I have sponsees who have younger children and who they're trying to teach responsibility to. And I'm just curious if you would adjust um, how you would handle those resentments if the child was younger and you were trying to, to teach them basically be to, be, to be responsible around the house for chores. And thank you so much again. Thank you. Those are excellent questions. I love the, the first question because I've also heard people saying I'm in step six, I'm in step seven. Um, you know, I would say that I will divide the answer into two parts. From the perspective of actually taking sponsees through the steps, I do it quite quickly. So after step five, um, I ask my sponsees to um, read the last two paragraphs on page 75 and then call me in an hour. Follow, ask themselves the questions that are um, stated in those paragraphs and follow the instructions and then call me in an hour and we can discuss. Um, when they call me on that second call, 
um, they have given instructions to uh, read steps um, six and seven, which are the first and second paragraphs, respectively, of page 76. And then I tell them, as part of the step six, uh, six, step six work, um, you know, add the column uh, regarding step six to the charts, and how would you behave if you were working step six, and we discuss them tomorrow. So when they call me the next day, because I speak to my students every single day when we're going through the steps, then we already have the blueprint. They know, and I say, okay, now you know how you need to behave. So next time this happens, you know, this is, this is how you act as if. Um, and we take step seven immediately. And then we move on to step eight. I ask them to read the step eight and nine uh, section in the big book. And... Uh, Maybe the next day or the day after, they have to have a list and step eight and so on. So from the purpose of working the steps, we do it quite quickly. But from the purpose of, I mean, for the purpose of taking sponsors to the steps, we do it quite quickly. But for the purpose of actually working it, I work this, we work step six every single day. It's not that I'm stuck in step six. It's that when I do my step 10 um, over something, uh, I don't just give it away and I'm done. I mean, a lot of people think that step, step 10 is um, you write your resentment and you give it away and you're finished. No. You, once you, you give it away, then you start on step six. Okay. You know, I want to I wanna yell at my husband because he, you know, you know bought the wrong laundry detergent. I don't know. Um, so what does step six tell me to do? Number one, I don't yell. Number two, I thank him for going to the store for me so I didn't have to. Number three, I either use that laundry detergent or I quietly give it away and go buy the one I like uh, without making him feel bad because he was doing a nice thing for me. Uh, then I ask God, remove my defects of character, and I move on to steps eight and nine. I make my amends as necessary, and I turn my attention to someone we can help. So, like, I'm constantly working step six. Um, so it's kind of like two two parts. I don't I don't leave people to, to, to ponder step six for weeks and weeks and weeks. You know, we do it one to three, but step six we work every day. And with regards to um, the garbage and young children, um, I unfortunately was in my disease when my children were young. My children are now older teenagers, so um, when I recovered six years ago, my youngest was about ten. Um, so I wish I could, I, I could, um, uh, turn back time, but I, I can't fix everything that I broke. Um, and I miss those very formative years, especially with my older boys. But, um, you know, I, I've learned from my sponsor when you deal with, with children, even with older children, that if I get angry, it's about me. It's not about them. Because if it's about them and, and their education, then I shouldn't get angry. It's like if, I, if I'm teaching somebody else's child and they don't get it, I don't get angry, right? It should be the same with my kids. If it's about teaching, then, um, then I, I don't need to be angry. So if I get angry, obviously I have to go back and do the work and clean it up. But how I would do it now is I would do it with them. Like if I, first of all, we have to make sure that the, that the, and I'm not a parenting expert, but that the chores are appropriate for their ages. So a 10-year-old can't take out the garbage. So I would do it with them uh, a few times. Um, 
and I would, um, you know, exhibit a lot of patience because, you know, we adults need a lot of repetition to get good at something. You know, children, all the more so. You know, children want to um, have more of a, of a of a of an impulsive nature. They want to do what feels good. You know, kind of like an addict in a way. Um, they don't want to, you know, stop and okay, I take out the garbage yuck, right? So I have to I have to proceed with a lot of patience, and I have to keep in mind I'm not doing this for my convenience. I'm doing this to teach them responsibility. If I start doing it because it's convenient for me, because I I hate taking out the garbage, then I then I have a problem. Um, and so the motivation here has to be cleaned up. But that's just how how I would do it. I mean I'm sorry I don't have a better way of say uh, of of, of uh, um better advice, I guess, because I'm not a parenting expert. And as I said, I was, I was in my disease when my kids were, were little. So, but I hope that that's, that helps. Thank you, Ruth H. Thank you so much. And Kathy Kay, your question for Nessa. Thank you, Melanie, for your service. And thanks so much, Nessa. I really got a lot out of your share. The previous person actually asked much of what I was going to ask, which is how do you work with your sponsees, and I understand what you do the first time around in step six. Um, I've had a number of sponsees who, after we do that initial work, um, they are discouraged um, because there are too many character defects to, to hold in one's mind and heart at the same time, or things don't seem to be changing. Um, how do you help the sponsee uh, come to see that this is a lifetime endeavor um, and, you know, we just work at it one step at a time? Yeah, um, that's, that's an excellent question. Um, it is easy to get discouraged, um, and that's why I think um, the big book says we claim spiritual progress rather than spiritual perfection because, you know, we're not going to be perfect most of the time. You know, that's why um, Bill added step 10, right? That was one of the steps that Bill um, added to the six tenets of the Oxford groups because he realized that you know, no matter how good we get, uh, we're never going to be other, anything other than human, and we're going to make mistakes, and we need a mechanism to, to clean it up. Um, you know, I, I cannot make my sponsees see something. I mean, that's something they have to do it for themselves. What I can do is, is tell them my experience, not only my successes, but also my failures, because, you know, oftentimes um, sponsees, think that this the sponsor really got it and they don't make any mistakes. And so, you know, like I I share with them my vulnerabilities. You know, when a sponsor comes and says, you know, like, you know, for example, in step 11 it says um, one of the items that we review at night is I was, think, was I thinking of myself most of the time. And my sponsor might get discouraged that the answer to that is yes. And I share with them, listen, it's the same thing for me. The answer is yes. But listen, yesterday I thought of other people for two minutes, and today I thought of other people for five minutes. So, so that's progress. You know, we have to recognize the progress when we see it, but um, managing expectations is, is a big thing. That's why 
that's why I also talked um, earlier about uh, the word of caution, right? That we want immediate gratification. We want, you know, we want to put the food down and not only have lost all the weight by the next day, but also lost the food obsession. And for most people, it doesn't work that way. And it's the same, same thing with, with the defects. Just because I become aware of my defects of character and I want them removed, that they're, gonna, that they're going to disappear instantaneously. So I, all I can do is offer encouragement and I offer empathy and examples from my own life. You know, um, I don't come across as the perfect mother and the perfect wife. I, I try to show my, my own growth. I mean, I have fights with my husband. It's just that I'm not fighting every day or every moment of the day like we used to anymore. Um, and uh, it's, it's, just, it's just progress. I mean, I, I, I don't have a magic, a magic um, answer to make my sponsees um, um, realize that it takes, it takes perseverance. Thank you very much. Thank you, Kathy Kay. L., your question, please, for Nessa. Hi, Nessa. Thank you so much for your service. I wanted to ask you if you could talk a bit more about the character defect of fear um, and, and bringing God into your life, enabling that fullness of God's power to really be believed, um, because I found just personally that fear really paralyzed me from so many things. And most recently um, I'm breaking free of an abusive uh, relationship, uh, spousal abuse in my, in my marriage. And so it's program has really brought to light as a result of the fifth step, how I was blocked by fear, just afraid to make the change to free myself. So if you could talk about maybe the as if, actions you took to have more faith in your life and climb out of the recordings. I know I have a lot of recordings in my mind that are slowly subsiding, but it takes time to regain that faith again uh, because years and years of staying in um, self-defeating behaviors as a result of fear have created a pattern. So if you could talk about that, I'd appreciate it. Thank you so much. Hi, thank you. Thank you for this question. I, I can't even imagine what, what you went through. I I um um I feel so so um touched that you um um put yourself in a vulnerable position to ask this question and I I, I would say that um I have never experienced anything remotely as severe as you have experienced. I mean I've had a fairly benign life, you know, benign upbringing, benign marriage, um, you know, um, so all my problems truly are of my own making, um, but what I, what I have learned about fear and how to deal with fear, I learned from the big book, and in page 68, it asks a question, it says, why do we have this fear? Was it because self-reliance failed us? And I find that when I'm in fear, it's because I am trying to control something that is not for me to control, you know, that I am inching into God's domain, that I'm trying to do God's work. You know, my business is the business of footwork, 
and God's business is the business of outcomes. All I can do is do the work, and the outcome is it's up to God. And so when there's an outcome that I don't like, that I'm trying to change, especially when it involves another person, I'm trying to change another person to get them to, to behave differently. Um, I, I am into, into God's territory, and I have no control. Uh, and that's why I have fear. You know, like in the example, in the very trite example I gave earlier with regards to the garbage, I have no control over my children's futures um, for the most part. I mean, of course, it's my job to educate them and, and train them to be responsible to the best I can. But ultimately, they have to make the decisions and the choices. And I have no control over the decisions and choices um, that they make. I have no control over the life philosophies that they adopt. And so I get full of fear. You know, what is their values different from my values, no matter what I've been trying to teach them? I can't, I can't do anything about that, so I become full of fear. Why? Because self-reliance is failing me. And what this is telling me is, you know, I to get out of God's way because this is God's job. And um, then I go to the next instruction that says we have got to remove my fear and direct my attention to what he would have have me be and what would he have me be he would be would have me be trusting and reliant upon him that no matter what happens i will be okay you know is it possible god forbid that my children are going to choose a path that i wouldn't choose for them it's entirely possible is it possible that they're going to discard my values and, 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 and adopt other values? It's possible. Is it possible that they're going to make poor choices? You know, God forbid, it's all possible. But I can be okay if I trust and rely on God. And, you know, I cannot point you out just at the top of my head to any recordings, but I remember a recording that I heard a long, long time ago. Um, it was a, a, a Sunday edition I think the woman's name was Robin, and she talked about this prayer that she made up for herself, and I have adopted it as my own, and I love it. You know, when I'm so quick with fear that my mind kind of freezes and I cannot think, I, I just go to God. And it's very simple. It is, God, I am yours, and I trust you. And that very simple prayer um, centers me again that, hey, you know, you're not in control. You're just an actor, uh, and God is the director. And so focus on what would God have you be, and, and that's what I do. So I, I can't answer your question better than that because, you know, we've had um, very different that. Sorry? Thank you so much, Nessa. That was beautiful. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Deborah, uh, for your question. And I did catch at the very end there someone by the name of Sue S. Do you still have a question, Sue? Sue S. Yes, I do. Thank you both for your service. Nessa, um, I'm hearing with step six that it takes constant work. How do you give yourself a break? like if you get tired or angry or confused? Um, that's a very good question. And I will define break 
uh, because break is not stopping to do the work. For me, a break is what um, it says in, in, in uh, step 11 in the big book, we pause when agitated or doubtful. So that's how I give myself a break. I, and I'm not very good at it, unfortunately. I mean, I, I work on it constantly uh, because I'm very good at reacting and most likely overreacting. But developing that pause uh, is so crucial to everything. There's very, little, very few things that require my immediate response, you know? Um, so I need to pause when agitated or doubtful. And for me, agitated is a code word for resentful, and doubtful is a code word for fear, fearful, which means I need to do a step 10. You know, if I'm agitated or doubtful, I need to pause. I need to say, okay, Nessa, time for a step 10. Um, if I can do it in my, in my mind and get some relief, that's great. If it needs to uh, take longer because I have to do it in writing and I have to call my sponsor or somebody else and discuss it with them, that's fine. But that's how I give myself a break. My break is um, to disconnect from the situation so that I can um, clean up my side of the street, uh, clean up my motives, my thinking, et cetera, and then go back to the situation. For me, uh, for me, a break, and the reason why I, I'm specific about this is because for me, a break used to be, oh, I've had a hard day, you know, I deserve to eat a box of chocolates. So obviously, I don't do that anymore. And I don't give myself a break from working the steps because that could be disastrous. For me, a break means pause, remove myself from the situation, regroup by doing a step 10 as necessary and then come back and deal with it. And again, I'm not perfect. I, you know, I don't, I don't do it this way a lot of the time. I'm not like most of the time, which is or some of the time, whatever. You know what I mean? Uh, which means I gotta go back and make amends um, because I I didn't pause. So I hope that that helps. Oh, it did tremendously. Thank you. Thank you, Sue S. There is time for more folks to ask a question as about what her presentation was today on step six. Any Katie other questions? Katie B. from Boston. <clears throat> hey, Katie. Anyone else with a question? June S. Ray from New Jersey. June S. and then Rachel J. Anyone else? Okay, let's go with Katie G. Your question, please, Vanessa. Melanie, thank you for your service. And Nessa, I'm privileged to hear you this morning and to walk this path with you. Um, just a little bit of a question around newcomers, people in relapse. I know that self-pity was something that I dealt with tremendously, um, especially going in and out of the food um, and I was wondering, besides the issue of time, because we all know that we need to get through the steps in an efficient and effective manner, if someone were to call you because they were in relapse and they were in self-pity or they were, they're new and they're in self-pity, what attitudes, actions, and behaviors 
would you suggest to them besides wait till you get to step six? Because I know that um, there there can be other other ways that um, obviously we need the steps, but I'm just wondering how you might respond to that. And thanks. <laughs> Thank, thank you, Katie. Thank you for taking away my answer. Because <laughs> I would have said, you know, when somebody's new or in relapse, you know, you cannot work step six before you um, you put the food down. Um, but um, so I would have said, you know, we have to get to step six and we have to get to step six quickly. But um, um, I, I would say that one of the tools that I, I still use and I give it to to uh, to students who have no access to um, the change steps, you know, step six and step 10, um, because they're not yet there in the process, is the serenity prayer. And I, um, I really love the serenity prayer, but not in the road kind of way that we say, you know, God, I'm eternity, God, everything I'm going to change. You know, like that's, but to really ponder and think about it. And, you know, I, you know, I even suggest to do it in writing, just, um, um, take a piece of paper and divide it in two, and one side put um, serenity to accept the things I cannot change means um, what is out of my control, and the other side, the courage to change the things I can is the things that are in my control, and then itemize specifically, as specifically as possible to that situation, what is within and without my control. So, for example, like, uh, garbage example, the garbage example, you know, I don't understand, you know, my neighbor's kids are so diligent, you know, they, they, not only they, they take out the garbage, but they even wash the garbage can, you know, and my kids, you know, half the garbage is, is strung over, over the path that they take to the garbage after I beg them and beg them and beg them, so, you know, poor me, you know, now I got a big mess to clean up, yada, yada, yada. So I, you know, got me the money to accept the things I cannot change. I cannot change the fact that my kids are not interested in the garbage. I cannot change the fact that they have other priorities. I cannot change the fact that taking out the garbage is a yucky job. Uh, and the courage to change the things I can. What can I change? My attitude. You know, um, my attitude is, um, you know, I'm making a big deal out of it. I shouldn't make such a big deal out of it. And I can just take a broom and sweep it up or a mop and mop it up. Not a big deal. If my kids are not doing a good job, I can take a few minutes and, 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 and teach them how to do it. Um, I can stop comparing uh, my kids to the neighbor's kids. I can stop um, you know, wishing for the neighbor's kids because you know, I don't know how the neighbor's what the other kids are truly like. I, I really don't know. So that's, that's a few, those are a few examples. Um, and I encourage my sponsors to do it that way. I still do it this way sometimes because then the wisdom to know the difference, it's actually quite there in front of, of me in black and white. So uh, I'm sorry, but that's, that's the best I've got on your excellent question. Thank you, Katie G. June S., your question, please. Start on June S. Sorry, this is June S. Um, thank you, Melanie, and, and thank you so much, Vasa, uh, uh, for your clear explanation and connection between the fourth step inventory and how that helped with my sixth step. Um, 
I have a long list of character defects that I see in my daily behavior. But one Me major character—thank <laughs> you. <laughs> but one major character defect for me is pr- procrastination, which affects various aspects of my life. My question to you is: How do you manage working vigorously in, uh, in my case, procrastination, even though other character defects also pop up in my daily life? I'm kind of these one of these people. I'm not a multitasker, so. Anyway, yeah, that's my you know what? This is it's so amazing you're asking this question because I have been talking about procrastination with people so much this past week. You know, not only with Francis mm-hmm. but also with like friends in program. It's a, I mean, this this procrastination problem plagues everybody. I am a big procrastinator when it comes to doing the taxes. I, I hate it, and I, I've come to believe that procrastination is a incarnation of fear and, and more exactly the fear of failure. You know, if I don't do it, I cannot fail. So I put it off and put it off and put it off, not realizing that the actual procrastination produces more anxiety in me than, um, than the actual, than the actual process. You know, I, my, my kids, just to, just to give you an example, my, my, uh, my middle son had, was Jewish. My middle son had his bar mitzvah five um, years ago, and I just finished his um, photo album. Um, I uh, talk about, I mean, I procrastinated, and every time my family asked, asked me, I said, don't ask me, don't ask me, stresses me out, you know? And... Mm-hmm. What was the fear? The fear, the fear, was the reason the fear of not doing it well, of not, I don't know, it seems trite, but I think that procrastination is, is mostly due to fear. So we need to identify through the use of the steps what exactly is that fear? If it's fear of failure, what am I afraid of? What lies am I telling myself? What lies am I telling myself that I'm not going to be okay, that I'm going to do. Uh, a lousy job and I won't be okay. Maybe I will do a lousy job, you know. Maybe I will have to pay more taxes than, than I would have had if I done a good job. But but so what? But so mm-hmm. what? Um, you know, I can still be okay, maybe a little bit poorer if I have to pay more money, but but I can still be okay. So I need to identify the fear and see how it's being selfish and how it's being dishonest and self-seeking and, and all that. Um that's um, mm-hmm. I mean, that, that's that's the conclusion that I've come come to with regards to my own behavior and the discussions I've been having recently with people on the same issue. Mm. Thank you so Thank much, Cassie. That sorry, that really helps. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Junis. Rachel J, you're next. Your question, please. Hello, hi. This is Rachel J from New Jersey. Thank you, Melanie and Nessa, for your service. Um, my question today actually refers to um, 5, 6, and 7, um, steps 5, 6, and 7, because I actually did them last night, late at night. And um, <laughs> And what happened after I got done, my husband had came home, and when I got into bed with him, I had smelled alcohol on his breath. Now, he does have his own addiction he's dealing with. It's not alcohol but I noticed that 
it's like he's picking up something else to substitute for his other addiction to deal with stress. And I got angry. Like, I just completed these steps, and I got angry. I didn't yell, but I did address the situation. And now that I'm listening, I don't know if it was really right for me to even address that. I guess I should have given it over to God. But um, I guess my question is, like, how do I deal with the fear and the anger when dealing with with my spouse? Um, you know, I um, my husband and I used to fight over my weight and over what I ate constantly. Uh, we didn't really fight much over other things. I mean, we did fight over other things, but not... Uh, not much, it was my weight. It was my weight and how much I ate. And all that fighting and all that anger from him did nothing to propel me to address my problem. Absolutely nothing. If anything, it entrenched me more into, into, into the food because I thought, you know, if you had my husband, you did too, you know, like, oh, after a fight, man, I needed chocolate. Um, you know, kind of like, you know, you don't like me the way I am, well, I'll show you and I'm going to get even fatter. Um, you know, it's kind of that insane thinking. So, um, a person doesn't recover until a person wants to recover. Um, there's nothing that anybody outside of, of ourselves can say or do to convince us, you know, it all falls into the category of frothy emotional appeal. But, you know, when I... And I'm afraid, I mean, my, my, my husband um, is, uh, is also a compulsive overeater who is not in recovery. And I don't say anything to him. Um, I mean, I, I did plant some seeds, and I said, you know, you might want to try this. There's men who could sponsor you. There's men's meetings. And if you want to go to certain meetings that I go to, then I'll stop going to them or, you know, whatever. And it didn't, it didn't register, so I dropped it. But so when the fear grips me, I, again, go to the work. Step, um, um, step four, page 68 says, you know, we have got to remove the fear and direct my attention to what he would have me be. What would we have me be? You know, my husband was very patient with me. I mean, when, when we got married, I was 112 pounds, and he knew me for maybe a year. So he knew me for maybe a year in a normal weight, and for 20 years, he put up with obese me. Talk about, you know, bait and switch, right? Um, so I owe him the same tolerance, pity, and patience, you know, and even more so because I'm in recovery uh, without lecturing him or instructing him what to do. Uh, so again, God removed my fear, direct my attention to what he would have me be. He would have me be uh, loving, accepting, patient. Uh, accepting doesn't mean condoning. It doesn't mean that I, all of us and I think that excessive food consumption or excessive alcohol consumption is, or excessive TV watching or whatever is, um, is good. It means that I'm accepting that God is his addiction, and when he's good and ready, when he's in enough pain, I guess, like I was, he'll do something about it. In the meantime, I have to, I have to act in a way that God would have me, and I have to rely on God. Another thing that God 
would have me be. And this is this probably should be number one in every single one of my um, fear entries in my inventory. Is God would have me be trusting and reliant upon Him that I will be okay. What if my husband never goes into recovery? I can still be okay. Uh, I can still be okay. So that's 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 what I use. I use I use the big book to guide my thinking, which guide my feelings, which guide my behavior. Um, I hope that helps you. No, that that really did help me tremendously. Thank you so much. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you, Rachel J. Julie H., you're next. Your question, please. Julie H., star one. Yeah. Hello. Hi. Oh, there you are. I think. Hi. Hi. Um, yeah. So I get angry when I'm working much harder than coworkers, and a lot of times I end up doing more than my share, and sometimes I'm doing their share too when they're slacking off. So how do I rely upon God in this situation? Like, how do I differentiate between when I should have self-pity and do action of like I should change? what I'm doing about doing more than my share, or I should have more tolerance to them and continue, like, let's say the children taking out the garbage. But here we're talking about adults and co-workers. So what's the difference in those scenarios? Yeah. I, yeah. Well, I would just, it's a, it's a very good question because now we're dealing with adults. Um, who should know better and should be more responsible. But, you know, there's a lot of irresponsible adults there, and I am, I'm one of them because I'm sure that I have been irresponsible in many areas of my life, and even in recovery I still am um, irresponsible in some areas. So um, I, I would also say that um, there's a danger here that if you do your co-worker's job, that um, you know, you're going to be enabled and enabling them to do even less that they do now. So there's a very fine line, and because you know, um, I'm not very knowledgeable or familiar or conversing with you know this kind of like whatever codependency or or what have you. I can't really say very much. But I, again, I I go to step six. You know, what does God demand from me? You know, my my responsibility is to be of maximum service to others, including my employer. What my, um, what my coworkers do is their business with their employer. It just happens to be the same employer. Uh, it's none of my business. I'm not their boss. I'm not their supervisor. Um, I have to make sure that I, um, that I do what is required of me. If out of the kindness of my heart I want to help out, and I think that that's a good that's a good thing too. I can I can um, I can be of service to my coworkers as well. Um, if especially if if the workloads are not very you know very balanced, I have less than they do, or I'm more efficient than they are. But again, you know, like it's it's a matter of of where is the line. You know, how much help is too much help um, for them. But the biggest issue here. It's not so much what I actually do, it's how I actually feel. You know, the resentment that I have to do all this. The self-pity that, oh, you know, because I'm more efficient, they 
um, they're giving you more work. You know, that is something that is easier to address because, because I have the steps. So if I'm getting angry, if I'm going into self-pity, self-pity, by the way, is, is, is a, a selfish form of, of dishonesty, um, then I have, to, uh, I have to do a step 10. You know, I have to uh, uh, process the resentment and resentful at my coworkers because, you know, they don't do what they're supposed to do. I'm resentful at my employer because they dump on me what my coworker doesn't do. And then I have to see how am I being selfish of seeking dishonest and fearful. And then based on those character defects, then I move on to step six to see, okay, how do I, how do I act as if? How do I fake it till I make it, till, until God removes my defect of character? Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Julie H. Thanks, Nessa. Are there any other questions, any burning questions before we conclude this meeting today? We have probably time for two, maybe others that had just that burning question in their heart. Start one, please. Hello, Mary. This is Mary Lee in Eugene, Oregon. I have a question. Okay, Mary Lee, let's see if there's another one. Kenneth McKay in Ohio. Hi, Kenessa. Morning. Thank you. That should probably conclude our meeting this morning. Thank you so much. Mary Lee, your question, please. Oh, good morning, Melanie. Thank you for being of service. And NASA, wow, I've not ever heard so much good stuff on Step 6 in a long time. Could you just give me a thumbnail, give us a thumbnail sketch of what your morning and evening is like in program? including all. Well, you mean like from a program perspective or like from my, what my routine looks like or? What your, how you work your program. I mean, I'm just in awe. I have a lot more um, ideas on step six now than I had before. And, and, and it has been a forgotten step. But how do you incorporate um, all of it? I mean, just what is it like when you wake up in the morning and what's your day like? Okay, so I, I would say, like, just uh, a priori thinking, um, step six doesn't come so much into play for me uh, at the beginning or the end of the day because I'm by myself. Um, it's mostly throughout the day as I encounter people, places, and situations, especially those that don't go my way. But I'll tell you, um, like I wake up at uh, quarter to five in the morning, and the first thing I do when I wake up after I turn off the alarm is um, I thank God for waking me up and for entrusting me with this day because this day belongs to God. Um, then I do some prayer and meditation. Um, you know, the, the time is really, the amount of time is really not important because that's specific to every, every individual. Then I work out, and uh, at 7, I'm ready to be on the, on the morning meeting. Um, and after that, I take my, my, my kids to school. Uh, and get ready for the day, um, you know, and I do a more formal 
more formal uh, prayer, let's say, like the, the earlier one is more meditation, but I do a, a more formal prayer. And during that, uh, during that period of time when I pray, I also think about um, gratitude, you know, what I'm grateful for, and I try to be um, specific. Usually I um, take each person in my family, my husband and each of my kids, and I think about, you know, four or five gratitudes about them um, to get me, get me well grounded. Um, and then, uh, and then my day, my day gets going, um, and I start encountering people. I have to be very mindful. Sometimes I am, sometimes I'm not, uh, because I have a, my tendency is to have these huge to-do lists for my, my day, very, very aggressive, um, um, <laughs> uh, overachiever, I guess, that I am. I have these very long lists, and so as part of my, my morning meditation, I need to, uh, as it says in the big book, we consider our plans for the day. I need to be well grounded that, you know, God, these are my plans. This is my to-do list, but this is your day. So if your to-do list for me is different than mine, you know, please give me the willingness to, to, to change what I have planned and go with what you have planned for me. And that works most of the time, you know. Um, um, I do that throughout the day. Um, it's it's just kind of not it's not generic, so it's very hard to 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 explain in a generic way. But um, lack, I mean, gratefully lately, not very many things upset me anymore uh, as a result of the work I've done in recovery. But invariably, I will have you know at least one step or maybe to step ten or maybe two to do throughout the day. Sometimes I can do them in my head and I get immediate relief. Sometimes I have to call my sponsor or a friend in program to get their perspective because I can't figure out how am I being selfish and dishonest, self-seeking and fearful and deal with it. Uh, and then uh, at the end of the day, when I finish work, I pick up my kids, I um, make dinner, and I have a, a brief period. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't, depending on the homework situation. I have that. Uh, sorry, one second. Somebody's just coming in. Nessa, are you back with us? Oh, hello. Yeah, I was. I just uh, I, I pressed the mute button. Sorry. Um, okay. Um, I was saying uh, at the end of the day, after dinner and homework and all the other things, I try to go to bed at a reasonable time so I can get seven to eight hours of sleep, which most of the time doesn't work, but I keep trying. Um, and I do my, my evening meditation. I just basically answer the questions that are in the big book. On page 86, I made myself this cute little notebook with all the, um, you know, fill-in-the-blank kind of format. And uh, I go through that, and then I pray uh, and uh, read a little bit and go to bed. Uh, I must say that throughout the day, I do take a lot of phone calls from outreach, and I speak to, uh, to my sponsees. So there's, uh, there's program peppered all throughout, all throughout the day. Um, and that's as, as generic as I can 
describe my routine, but if you have any specific question, then uh, maybe I can be more forthcoming with detail. Oh, that was awesome. Thank you. Thank you, Mary Lee R., for the question. Knessa, you'll be the last question that we have today for Nessa. Thank you so much. Knessa K. Awesome. Thank you to both of you for your service. Uh, Nessa, your morning and daily routine sounds exactly like mine. Early bird gets the recovery and keeps it, I think. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, So I want to focus on the steps and less about the situation, but um, I, I need to touch on it just to see if you could open my eyes to something. Um, I, my, my biggest awakening, if you will, was in steps six and seven when I was working the steps uh, to the best of my ability and became recovered. And I read Drop the Rock, and um, when I got to step nine, I made an amends to my unrecovered mother and the awakening was just amazing. And it was the relief I felt and, you know, the weight dropped off. And I find myself today working the steps to the best of my ability, um, <laughs> outreach after outreach, 10 step after 10 step. I cannot begin to tell you how hard I have worked this and I can't seem to figure out or pray to hear what I'm missing. And I wonder if the question is in step six and seven. Um, and I just would love to hear if you have any um, advice for me on dealing now with, I think, the key. You know, I, I was born this way. Nobody made me this way. Um, but have you ever had a situation where, Perhaps you're dealing with an unrecovered person, somebody who tried to work the 12 steps and uh, never made it all the way through, um, and how to deal with a situation that, you know, as addicts, I, I am myself too, can often be a user, um, how to, you know, draw boundaries and work the steps. Have you had a situation where, you worked it, worked it, worked it, and couldn't figure it out. I, I don't know a better way to ask it without going into a lot of detail. I'd be up to your feedback. Um, yeah, um, as I said before, my 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 husband is uh, an unrecovered um, uh, compulsive overeater, not in recovery, not in program of any kind. And you know, for a long, the longest time, I was trying to change him to get him to see that the steps were the answer to all his problems and therefore all my problems. Um, and, and that didn't work. Uh, we cannot make somebody want to be recovered. Um, and that, that is a hard pill to swallow because even if our motives are good and, and, and lofty and not selfish at all, you know, we truly want it for their well-being and their happiness, et cetera, um, we still cannot make them want it. Um, so I stopped pontificating to my husband. And, you know, as we say in the rooms, it's attraction rather than promotion, as it's uh, stated in the traditions. And, you know, the only thing I can do for him is stay recovered and grow in my recovery so that, you know, maybe one day, he can see that uh, my life is better as a result and his life could be better as a result. 
um, of, of the program. Um, but ultimately, I also need to accept that that may never happen. And I can still have a good life, and I can still love him, and I can still be married to him, and I can still have a good, pleasant, loving relationship with him, um, regardless of the choices he makes with regards to the food. Um, there was a time when he said that he wanted to do the same thing I did, and he asked me to um, really measure his food and... and um, you know, all those kind of things. And I, I just said, no, I, I very lovingly said, no, you know, um, because recovery is a one mind job. You know, I, I, um, I knew instinctively that my doing the work for him wasn't, wasn't going to help him. Um, quite, quite the opposite. I, I had an experience with him, uh, at the beginning of a relationship when I was trying to do a certain thing for him. And the more I did for him, the less he himself did. And that kind of brought back that memory. And I, and I said, no, I mean, if you want it, you, you got to be willing to, uh, to work for it, which obviously he wasn't because he never weighed and measured his food. Um, but I think that when we deal with unrecovered people in our lives, um, and people who are spiritually sick, and we are all spiritually sick to some degree or another, um, you know, all we can do is, you know, be a role model and a part of example, you know, through attraction instead of promotion. And beyond that, you know, it's in, it's in, in God's hands. Thank you, Nessa. And thank you, Knessa. Karen, that is our last question today. Thank you. Thank you for those that asked those questions, and thank you, Nessa, for sharing your experience with the steps to them on those questions. Thank you very much. Nessa's contact information will be given at the conclusion of this meeting today, so you might want to stay around for that. The share ID for today's Sunday special edition, which is February 11, 2018, is... One one zero three three. That's eleven thousand thirty-three. So we will now close the recorded portion of this meeting with read with a reading of page one sixty-four. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask Him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order, but obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right, and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless 